Good morning. If you all will join me, we're going to be in Acts chapter 16 this morning. We're going to be continuing the story of, of God's work through his apostles and disciples as the gospel spreads from being something confined to one narrow little Roman province to taking over the whole world. And, and make no mistake, it is actually spreading to the whole world. We're fortunate in that the, in the person of Luke, who is a companion of Paul's, we have this excellent uh, story and description of how the gospel made progress through the Roman Empire. Um, but at the same time this is happening, it's going the other way too. It's spreading out through the Persian Empire. Um, the Apostle Thomas is actually going to found a church in India that exists to this day. So from, from the first generation on, there were Christians in India. They spread all throughout the Eastern world as well, through the Persian Empire and beyond, uh, to the point that uh, by the seventh century, about the same time that Christianity is really making serious impacts in the British Isles uh, through the work of Irish monks, uh, there's also uh, Christian bishops in Nepal and Tibet. Um, we don't hear much about that because that is a, a, a branch of the church that um, kind of disappeared in the, in the pages of history, but uh, in God's providence, it spread that far, and uh, it made an impact, and it shaped the world there in, in ways as well. Well, here we're going to see just what it looks like when this new creation, this plan of redemption that God has always been planning to bring about comes up against the prevailing worldview of the day. And it's gonna, the contrast is really going to shake people up. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. We've, last week we talked about the uh, council in Jerusalem and their decision, the letter to the Gentile believers. We kind of skipped over the disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Um, and now we're, going, we're following Paul as he goes on his next missionary journey. Paul came to Derby and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was Jewish and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The believers at Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area, for they all knew his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and the elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in number. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony in the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. 
On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you, come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he had received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once, the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, Don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. At that hour hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, Release those men, the jailer told Paul. The magistrates have ordered you and Silas to be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they, were met, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. The word of the Lord. This is kind of an eventful journey. Oh, I forgot what I have to say here that I'm required to say by contract at the beginning of every sermon. There's a lot going on here. Okay. And there really is. And there's a bunch of little things that they just pass by in the text without much notice, but they're really important. 
The first story we have is we have him coming to Derby and then to Lystra where he meets this disciple named Timothy. And this guy already has a good reputation. And we'll know later from Paul's letter to Timothy that not only was he a Christian, but his mom was a Christian and his grandmother was a Christian. So this is an example of a good kid who grew up in the faith. When I first came to Christ, um, and I was already, you know, I was, I was uh, 18 when I came to Christ. I was not raised in the faith. And in the culture I got raised in, there was kind of this almost celebrity about people having great backstories before they got saved. You know, it was just really, you know, I was a bank robber. I mean, and really, our, our pastor was a former bank robber. Uh, one of my dear friends who was a church evangelist was a meth dealer. Um, they had these, I was, you know, I was a historian and a physicist, you know, it's not really, not really a great testimony. But then it, it kind of left some kids feeling, you know, oh, geez, my, I just grew up in a Christian household. And, and there was actually kind of this almost second-class citizenship if you didn't have one of these great stories. But this is a great story. This is faithfulness propagating generation to generation and remaining live and vibrant. That's a neat thing that parents and grandparents who can pass that faith to their kids in a way that it's real to them. Because there are a lot of families, absolutely, that are third and fourth generation Christians, but they're kind of, oh yeah, I'm a Christian. But that evidently for Timothy, that wasn't the way it was. I mean, this, was, this was, had been passed down to him, and he was, had a good reputation and really lived it. So that's, that's one of the first neat things. We're getting Timothy kind of, coming in with Paul, and even though Paul's taken Silas with him on this journey uh, to replace Mark, Timothy's really going to kind of step into that junior role of Mark. And, and here we, we meet him, and we, we get this kind of weird note uh, that Paul circumcised him. Now, we've just had this council at Jerusalem, and it said, oh yeah, we don't need, we don't need Gentiles to get circumcised. And, and it says right here that Paul is traveling and telling the, the results of this letter and this meeting to the churches. And yet here he is circumcising Timothy, which you could make you go for a second. Huh? What? Wait. But the thing is, Timothy comes from a Jewish family. His father was Greek, but he's from a Jewish family. And Paul never said that Jews should stop being Jews. What he said is that in Christ, you know, Jew or Gentile didn't matter. But he didn't say Jews should stop being Jews. So for the sake of the witness of the gospel, Timothy is circumcised, not as a requirement, not to make him acceptable to God, but, as a test, but to enable him to, test, to be a better testimony, or to be a good testimony, for there not to be a stumbling block there. This next part really interesting because it talks about Paul's journeys, and it talks about him twice being blocked from going into places by the Holy Spirit. You will have a lot of people reading this and coming up with different theories of what it might, what it might have been like. You know, maybe Paul got sick and he ascribed that to the Holy Spirit or whatever. I don't know what the nature of that was. But I do know that Paul and his companions were people that were so regularly in prayer and so regularly in the Word that when something happened, they were able to see it as the work of the Holy Spirit. Much like the Jerusalem Council, they didn't just say, hey, we think this is wisdom. 
When they write their letter, they said, it seemed good to us and to the Holy Spirit. There's this vibrant sense that they're walking hand in hand with God and his spirit. They're not just people engaged in good philosophy and carrying out a good work, but they are working hand in hand with God who called them. And it's worth noting that these regions that Paul is prevented from going into, they're not without gospel testimony. As a matter of fact, there are going to be churches planted here that Paul is going to write letters to. Some of them are planted by people who were in cities where he was preaching. They accept that news, and they go back to their hometowns, and they start the churches there. And it, it kind of emphasizes this thing that we're getting the story of Paul. But the gospel is advancing in all sorts of other ways, not just where we see Paul. The Holy Spirit is at work throughout the whole world. But he gets this vision of this man from Macedonia saying, come into Macedonia and help us. This is Paul going to Europe. So he crosses over and he goes to Philippi. Now Philippi is an important city in a number of ways. Now, there's, there's many great cities in the empire. Um, Antioch, where Paul, Paul's home church, so to speak, is actually a, a very significant large city. More so, actually, in some ways than uh, Philippi. But Philippi is a Roman city in a very special way. It doesn't just have Roman citizens living there. The city was originally founded by the father of Alexander the Great, Philip of Macedon, uh, when he was beginning to expand uh, his empire, or his kingdom at that point, into Greece, and he established this city as one of his outposts, and later his son, Alexander, would expand it. But the Romans, after the Roman Civil War, uh, which resulted in Augustus coming to power and uh, becoming the first emperor, after, after the final battle of that, they actually s settled all their veterans in this city. They remade it as a Roman colony, and it does a couple things. One, you reward all your soldiers for, for helping you. Two, you keep all your soldiers away from Rome so they don't get other ideas and, you know, because you've just had a civil war and you don't want that to happen. So you, you give them land, you, you get them nicely established, and it establishes Roman culture. And those Roman soldiers are Roman citizens. So this city of Philippi is not just another city that has some Romans in it. It is a Roman city. It is a little Rome. So when Paul comes to Philippi, he is really coming head-to-head -head with Roman society and bringing the word of the Lord there. We get this wonderful story about on the Sabbath morning, they go outside the city. There's no synagogue. There are Jews throughout most of the empire, but in some places there's just not enough of them to have a synagogue. So what they would do, typically, they would gather outside the city on the Sabbath and have a time of prayer and, and read the Torah. And uh, so they go outside the city to, by the river, expecting to find this gathering like they usually do. And they do. Um, and as, as there is the pattern throughout the Roman Empire, wherever you have Jews gathering, you have a number of people that kind of have, have seen the monotheism, have seen the religion they practice, and are attracted to it. And they become people who, who fear God. They don't, they don't get circumcised. They don't fulfill all the Jewish ceremonial rules, but, but they, they fear God and they love God. And we have one of these God worshipers there, a woman named Lydia, and she is not just anybody. She's a dealer in purple, which doesn't sound like much to us. That would be kind of weird to us. It sounds strange, like 
oh, that's a guy who deals in brown. You know, I mean, you're like, what's that? Well, purple's a royal color, and there's a reason it's a royal color, because at that time, you know, we don't have artificial colors. Every color has a natural source, and purple comes from these little marine snails, and you have to squeeze a lot of snails to get much dye. So to be a dealer in purple, purple is a royal color. It is an imperial color, so you're dealing with the upper crust of society. It is a very lucrative trade. This isn't just any woman. This is a rich businesswoman. And she believes Paul's message. And she says, look, if I've found favor with you, come and stay with me. And her whole household gets saved. That's one thing we're going to notice, especially in this chapter of Acts. Salvation and conversion here is not pictured as an individual thing. Because we live in a society that prizes the individual, we tend to think of salvation as an individualistic project. We get songs, which I, I really appreciate the spirit. You know, me and Jesus got our own thing going. Uh, some of you, okay, you haven't been Christian long enough to have heard that. But back, back in the 70s, that was a song. Um, but conversion is very much a community thing. So we're going to see over and over here, household. When it comes in, man, it transforms everything. So her whole household. So Paul and, has this, uh, this wonderful opportunity to be based out of this very prosperous woman's house is going to hospitality going to free him up he's not going to have to be tent making at this point he's just going to be free to preach so he goes out to preach one of the things and i just passed over this without mentioning it and i should have but uh we just get this little thing that pops in here it's famous in scholars of acts uh starting in verse 10 uh, you know, verse 8, they talk about Paul and, said, and, and Silas and said, so they passed Mysia and went to Troas. But when we get to 10, after Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave. That's Luke kind of dropping the hint in that, oh, by the way, I joined the parade here. Luke is a doctor, so some people have, have kind of read this into maybe the way the Holy Spirit kept Paul out of those places was he got sick and he needed a doctor. I think that's reading something in there that's really not there. But you get this little aside um, that, that Luke is now part of this. And it lets you know that what he's, he's writing to you, he hasn't assembled from a lot of other sources, but he was actually a firsthand participant in this. And the parts he wasn't for, he heard from the people who were there firsthand. So Paul and Silas, with this wonderful base of hospitality in Philippi, are going out and preaching. And there's this servant girl that follows them around, and she has an evil spirit. You would expect an evil spirit to say, don't listen to these people, you know, these, they're horrible. But no, this, this spirit's just going around going, these men are servants of the Most High. They're telling you the way to be saved. Sounds good, right? But it's drowning everything out. So sometimes opposition might ne not necessarily look like opposition, but if it's detracting from the gospel, it achieves that effect. So we, sometimes we expect like everything that runs counter to the, to the gospel to sound like it's counter to the gospel. Sometimes it just sounds like banging on the drum and joining the bandwagon, but doing so in such an inappropriate way that it distracts from the real message. So Paul casts the evil spirit out of her. And then her owners realize, 
man, our slave is, is, is profitless to us. She can't, she can't divine things anymore. She's not demon-possessed anymore. And they get mad and they stir the people up and drag Paul and Silas to the marketplace to face the authorities. I think it's interesting that their only interest in their slave was her economic potential. This is the way the world works at this time. It can be very easy because we live in a world that's actually shaped by Christian values to forget how radical they were at the time. And there's a historian named Tom Holland. He does a really good job of contrasting the Christian values and virtues with the pagan values and virtues that preceded them. And so much of what we just take for granted just didn't exist. And you'll hear people talk about things like basic human goodness. I believe in basic human goodness. And you can say that in the world we live in because it's been so saturated by these ideals that you can think, oh, these are just ideals every human had. But no, actually, they really weren't. There was a time when nobody thought that way. And your only interest in another human being might be what they could make, what profit they could bring to you. Um, and I would propose that there are still people that relate to the world that way. They're just not as straightforward about it. So they drag them in front of the authorities. And they say, these men are Jews. And they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Now there's a big no-no right here. They're saying these men are Jews. Absolutely true. But then they're trying to make it look like there's something wrong with being a Jew. And in fact, Jews had accepted legal status in the Roman Empire. They were considered a, re a legitimate religion. Romans, in many ways, were very, very conservative. And while the empire might take a dim view of new religions coming into its empire, if they conquered a territory, they were very scrupulous about observing long-established traditions in that place. They had great respect for ancient tradition. Rome itself was actually built on customs and law in a way that was very different from all the societies before them. One of the things that enabled Rome to achieve its status as an empire was, in fact, their adherence to traditions and laws. The Romans, and we tend to think of, you know, we think of the worst excesses of the emperors and all the stories that Hollywood is so good at portraying, but in fact it was a, a society that was really established on laws. And when they first started out, they were actually just a small city-state surrounded by much more powerful city-states. Um, and their neighbors even had better technology than them in a lot of ways. But they had law, and th this thing happened where, like, if you fought the Romans and you killed their general or their king, well, actually, their leaders, they had done away with kings. The Tarquins are long in the past. They, they knew who the next guy was. There was an orderly pattern, and their society didn't go to pieces. They had continuity. You fought another city, and you killed their king, and the whole thing went to pieces until they could reorganize and figure out who was in power and how they were going to run things. And that, that core of, of law and tradition actually enabled them to come to dominate the Mediterranean world. So they had a great respect for customs, long-established customs and traditions, and they really didn't like overthrowing them. So when they came and <laughs> took over Syria, and with Syria got Palestine and the Jews, 
they recognized that they had this long established religion and they weren't going to mess with it. They said, you guys are legitimate. So when the people of Philippi here are making this charge, they're actually going against Roman law. One of the things Luke is really good about doing, both in his gospel and in the book of Acts, is he's really good at laying it out that the Christians are not actually ever breaking any laws, that they are, in fact, good citizens in every way they can be. So these charges brought against them, they're bogus. They're advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Well, we'll get to what that might be in a minute. So the crowd, you know, attacks Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten, and they're thrown in jail. Then we get this great vignette of what they do in jail. There is a biblical place for mourning and for lament. The Psalms show us it is okay to cry out to God, saying, God, why? Or, God, I'm suffering, comfort me. That would have been a a biblically defensible thing for them to do, but they're not. They're praising God and they're singing hymns. And all the other prisoners are like paying attention to them because like, who are these guys? They just got beaten, they're thrown in the stocks and they're not filing their appeal with the Supreme Court. They're praising God. And then there's this earthquake and the doors are thrown open and their chains fall off. I know God has a sense of humor because not only is this is what's happening to deliver Paul and Silas at this moment, but that what's, that's what God is going to do to the Roman Empire. That is, that is a great picture of what is going to happen to the Roman Empire. So the jailer wakes up because he's fallen asleep and he sees the door open and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm responsible for all these people. I'm in trouble. My family is going to be in trouble because of what I've done, so he's going to kill himself. That's not just despair. Actually, in the Roman Empire, it it was an honorable thing to commit suicide, and it it kind of evened the books. Like, if you you didn't do that, you would be punished. Your family would be punished. If you killed yourself, the authorities would go, he acted with honor, he accepted this happened, and your family would be fine. That was always an offer that the Romans were willing to make, to, if, depending on your status. But um, if you had sufficient status, that was always an offer the Romans would give you. And Paul says, hey, we're all still here. You didn't lose anybody. And the jailer, you know, as, as you might imagine, this is outside his experience. Who, who stays in a jail after the doors open and the chains fall off? You know, so he lights the lights and he goes in and he's like, Wow. And he realizes, okay, something very different outside my experience is going on here. And he says, what must I do to be saved? They tell him, hey, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. Again, not just individual salvation, but that corporate salvation. The jailer brought him to his house and you immediately see his change of heart. He takes care of them. He takes care of their wounds. And then he and his whole family are immediately baptized. This wonderful All through the book of Acts, we get something that goes out of the early church fairly soon. But at this point, it's very common. As soon as people get saved, they're getting baptized. They're they're identifying with the new family as soon as they can. Then when it's daylight, the magistrates and officers come and says, release those men to us. And Paul gives that great statement. He goes, hey, they want us to go away quietly? 
when they had us beaten and we're Roman citizens, there's a lot hiding in here. One thing, they're both Roman citizens. When the council in Jerusalem selected its representatives to go back to Antioch to carry their thing, one of the people they chose was Silas. They chose a Roman citizen. When they were thinking of sending that letter to the Gentiles, it's very significant that the person they sent was a Roman citizen. So there's a lot going on here, as I always say. (laughs) And Paul says, hey, we're Roman citizens and you beat us. Notice when he says it. He says it afterwards. When he's first hauled behind, uh, before the magistrates, Paul doesn't say, hey, wait a second, I'm a Roman citizen and so is Silas. He doesn't defend his own rights with his Roman citizenship. He lets it pass. He lets them condemn him and beat him and goes to jail. Why doesn't he stand on his rights? I think it's because he doesn't want to rob the gospel of its power. If he had stood on that privileged position as a Roman citizen... I think it would have made less of an impact than what happened. You know, Paul will tell us, he, he, gets the, he will lay it out. God's power is made perfect in our weakness. But then why does he bring out that he's a Roman citizen here? Because he's thinking about the future life of this church here. And if he just creeps away as a beaten man, it will look like something untoward went on here, that this is somehow shady and underhanded. And he wants the church to have a good reputation. Like I say, Luke is very scrupulous about showing that the the early church is not doing anything contrary to Roman law. So Paul lays out this is when he stands on his rights, and he does it not for his own sake, but for the sake of the witness of the church going forward. Well, if they didn't violate Roman law, what was really throwing the the world into an uproar? What's turning the world upside down, as it were? They're advocating customs. What are they doing? Well, Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, he gives this great statement. He says, look, you're salt and you're light. You're going to be different from the world. By accepting the gospel, by accepting the proposition, as it says in Colossians, that God was in Christ reconciling all things to himself, they're abolishing all sorts of things that are part and parcel of the ancient world. For one thing, they're recognizing that every human being is made in God's image. And if every human being is made in God's image, every human being has a dignity. They're not just economic units to be exploited. When Christianity comes to town, what do you have in communion? You have masters and slaves sitting at the same table eating together. That's just wrong. We can't do that. You have slaves and women treated equally with the men. That's just weird. We don't do that. Now, upper-class Roman women would be citizens and would have some rights. But if you weren't, you had no rights. You were chattel. You were the property of the head of the household. And they're coming through and saying, no, 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 that's not the way the world works. There were all sorts of cults coming into the Roman Empire, proclaiming secret ways to salvation. It was not new to say that here was a new teaching that was going to teach you how to be set in the afterlife. That that wasn't new. It even wasn't new to proclaim 
that there was an ultimate God who was the head of other things. There were other religions. Zeus was that kind of a thing. But this just didn't comfortably stay in the afterlife. This said, hey, we believe there's a king. We believe there's a Lord. We believe we're all made in his image. And then they acted like it. They didn't act like the gospel was simply, you were separated from God from your sins and now you've been reunited with God. They acted like the gospel was, hey,